grateful, Lord, as we prepare to do the task of, of opening up your word and to listen, see what your word says, not only to us, but just what it says, and then subsequently what it says to us. Lord, we want to know what your word meant then so we can know what it means today. Lord, we want to know what it means to to follow after Christ. And to know what it means to follow after Christ, we need to know who Christ is. And Lord, today we come proclaiming the, the crucified and risen Christ. We come opening your word that has been inspired by your spirit to know you more fully, to understand the, the origin of the church and your purpose for her. So Lord, as we as a gathered church today come and sit under the preaching of your word, Lord, I pray that you will give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive, minds to comprehend what you have laid forth in your text. May we not be simply hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Lord, if there be those here today who who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, who are not following him today as their king. Oh, Lord, we pray that today will be the day of salvation and that you will receive all glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and, and open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts, the book of Acts chapter 2, and as you do, I remember the very first sermon that I ever preached, if it could be called that. I was 17 years of age. I remember being nervous. I remember sitting out in the hallway prior to the service starting, trembling on the inside, about to stand up in big church and preach. I remember one of my illustrations, but you know what I don't remember about that day? My text. I don't remember the text. Like the very, like the most important thing of a sermon, and that's what I don't remember about my very first sermon. And, and here's probably the big reason why I, why I don't remember my text. Because whatever text that I, I read, it wasn't the anchor of my sermon. It was simply the springboard to allow me to say whatever else I wanted to say that evening. See, a good sermon, a faithful sermon, is anchored in the text. It's tethered to the text. 
the point of the passage driving the point of the sermon. But what's tempting for, for any preacher of any age and any amount of experience is to use the text to simply say what he wants to say. That's what I would call a springboard sermon. Meaning you read the text and then you leave it like you would a diving board never to return. I'm sure we've all heard such sermons. Another pastor that I am familiar with uh, describes it like a drunk person using a lamppost. More for support than illumination. Either way, that, that essentially describes my first sermon and any number of sermons that I've preached thereafter for many years in the early years of my preaching. More splash than substance. Story on the front, story on the back, with a little scripture there in the middle. No real substance, no real illumination, no real meat to bite into. So no offense to my wife at all in this, and I do have her permission, but it's kind of like one of her sandwiches. I look at one of her sandwiches, and I'm like, Where's the meat? Like, where is it at? Like, she'll have the bread and something thin called meat in the middle. Maybe a slice of cheese that goes with it. And I'm like, come on. Like, pile on the meat if you're going to make a sandwich. I want to see the sandwich. If I, if I wanted bread, I would order toast. Like, I want a, a sandwich. And see, I want my sermons like I want my sandwiches, with meat, with substance, something that's going to, to bring nourishment, feed, feed my hunger, and bring me back over and over again wanting more, which is exactly what we have with the sermon that we're hearing today. And I can say that with confidence because I'm preaching another man's sermon today. Now, when you hear that, don't think plagiarism, all right? And if you are thinking that, you probably haven't read ahead. But what we're looking at today is Peter's first sermon. A sermon that is absolutely loaded with meat and anchored in the scriptures. And my aim today is to simply preach his sermon that we find here in this text. To let the point of his past, this passage, the point of his sermon, be the point of this sermon. But remember, this is the same guy who denied Jesus three different times just 53 days prior. And now he's getting his turn to preach in big church. <laughs> big church for him being right out in the streets with thousands of people gathered around him now to listen. People who are gathered to listen, why? Because the 120, 120 or so persons that we're told about in chapter 1, after receiving the promised Holy Spirit that we saw last week or two weeks ago, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So 120 people who never learned these languages before, 
are out in the streets proclaiming the mighty works of God in the languages of the people. And as you can imagine, large crowds begin to form. People are are curious by what is taking place. And how do all the people respond? How do the crowds respond? Acts chapter 2, verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with a new wine. Which would appear to be a natural reaction, right? I mean, let's just say that we were downtown Charlestown. Or better yet, we're down in D.C. Because let's face it, they have a broader international population in D.C. And we're down there, we're hanging out with our family. And then a group of 120 so people come out into the streets loudly proclaiming and worshiping God, proclaiming the mighty works of God in the languages of the people. How are we going to respond to that? We're witnessing this take place. How are we going to respond? Well, with some form of amazement, right? Probably a good amount of perplexity, like what in the world is all this about? Probably wondering if these folks ate the wrong brownies or maybe had a little too much to drink the the night before or that morning. Which is why this question we see in verse 12 is a natural question. A question we should want those in our concentric circles of influence asking. What's the question? What does this mean? Like, What is all this about? That's point number one. What does this mean? Because that's the question. What does this mean? And this is where Peter's like, okay, let me tell you what this means. And before we look at what Peter tells them, consider Peter once again. Why might he, of all the apostles, be so eager to preach the gospel? Because he knew what it meant to receive God's grace. Remember, he had denied him three times, 53 days prior. He knows what it means to be forgiven. And now, with the Spirit working in him, he's compelled to do what? To testify. Anyone remember the gospel singer Kirk Franklin? We'll see what kind of crowd we got. Raise your hand. Some of you remember Kirk Franklin. Some of you are like, I have no idea of who he is. But Kirk Franklin, he would be like shouting out, can I get a witness? Up in the house, right? And that would be Peter here going now in response. I'll give a witness. Peter is here to testify. Peter is here to say, okay, you want to know what all this means? I'm going to tell you what all this means. Why? Because his life had been changed forever by the crucified and risen Christ. And church, I'm going to ask you this morning, friends, I'm going to ask you this morning as you listen to God's word to consider the question, has yours? Has your life been radically changed by the risen Christ? And are you prepared to give a witness? Are you giving a witness? But now verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. 
For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, meaning it's only 9 a.m. They're not drunk. Verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And before we read what Peter quotes from the prophet Joel, here's why quoting Joel is so important. Peter wants to show them that what's taking place is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. That, that what they're witnessing with these 120 people speaking in all these different ethnic languages aligns with what has been promised by God from the Old Testament scriptures. So this was promised long ago. Meaning what? Meaning Peter is anchoring his sermon where? In God's word. He's using the scripture here to illuminate their hearts and minds to the truth. He's like, okay, let's pile on the meat. Not relying on eloquent speech or clever stories, but the word of God to anchor the authority of his sermon. And the same should be true of every sermon we give our ears to hear today. But quoting from Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32 he picks up in verse 17 here in Acts, okay? So that's the citation of where he's quoting from, Joel 2, 28 through 32. But we're looking here in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All right, so needless to say, there is more packed in these verses than we are going to have time to be able to break down in totality today. We're going to look at it further next week, but it's all coming from, from what source? Everything we're looking at right here is coming from what source? The Old Testament prophet Joel, the book of Joel. A book and a passage all who were listening would have been very, very familiar with. And so here's the question. What's Peter's purpose here in quoting Joel? Well, his purpose is to tell the, the list, those listening that everything that you're witnessing, everything that you're hearing right now is the fulfillment of this text. These 120 are not drunk like you suppose. They're prophesying the mighty works of God just as the prophet Joel foretold. Which means that Peter is telling them that the prophet Joel is pointing to who? Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed 
by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The church, what we have here is an absolute master class in apologetics. Apologetics meaning a, a, to give a defense of the faith. Here, Peter using solid biblical exposition to, to show, to illuminate how all of Scripture is pointing us to who? To Jesus. How that Jesus they crucified is who Joel, the, very, the, the prophet, and every other prophet is pointing to. Because in verse 21, he tells them what? And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is an Old Testament promise. We quote it from Romans all the time. But it's in the Old Testament where this promise of everyone calling upon the name of the Lord will be saved is rooted which means everyone gathered would hear this quotation, hear this prophetic word from Joel being quoted, and be like, yes and amen, we agree with this. They'd be in agreement with with what Peter is quoting, and Peter knows that they would be in agreement with what he's quoting, but he also knows where they're not in agreement. Meaning what? He possesses a good cultural awareness. We as a church, we as a people, we as Christians need to possess a good cultural awareness of those that we are trying to engage. But where they're not in agreement in this situation is in believing Jesus is the Lord that they are to call upon if they are to be saved. They're not in agreement there. They do not believe that Jesus is the Christ. If they did, they wouldn't have done what? Kill him. If they believed that he was the Christ, they would not have crucified him. See, to this point, such a thought was considered complete blasphemy by the religious elite. It's why they killed Jesus. And Peter knows that his words here could give them every reason to kill him as well. But what's Peter do? Well, notice how the first thing he does is point them to Jesus' mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Peter referring to all the miracles and all the healings and all the feedings that Jesus did, of which Peter knows that many in this crowd right now had witnessed and experienced these things for themselves. They'd been among those gathered to hear Jesus teach. They had their stomachs filled with fish and bread that Jesus multiplied. They'd seen the wonders. They'd also been among those who cried out, crucify him. Which is why Peter says, you yourselves know all of this. And yet what? You delivered him up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be crucified. You did this which is an incredibly important declaration, that, that part of according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. As he says, God is the one who is sovereign over all of this, every bit of it. But at the same time, let's not be mistaken. 
you are culpable. Every single one of you, he's saying, are culpable for your actions. So like Joseph telling his brothers what they intended for, for, for evil, God intended for good, these Jews that Peter is speaking to, this people killed the long prophesied Messiah because they wanted to. They wanted to kill him. They're culpable. They're guilty. But they did so in accordance with the scriptures and God's sovereign will. It was the will of the Lord, as scripture tells us, to crush him. But then what did God do? Verse 24, God raised him up from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. Death unable to hold him. Why? Because death had no reason to hold him. Why? Because there was no judgment left to be paid. Jesus had already substituted his life for lawless men at the hand of lawless men. His resurrection was a declaration of his victory over sin and death. But notice how Peter's not anywhere near done with his argument here, is he? Why? Because he knows his audience is still skeptical. And he's still building his case here. Piece by piece, starting with Joel, moving to what he just told them about Christ, building toward the climactic point of his sermon. But right now, he does have them hooked. He has them inquiring, perplexed, amazed. And he started with Joel again, then he moved to Jesus. But again, they're not yet convinced. And so where does Peter go next? Back to the scriptures. Back to his anchor. Time to broaden the illumination, if you will. Time to look at King David. And here's why turning their attention to King David is so important and wise. Because Jewish tradition held or holds that David was born and died during Pentecost, during this feast of weeks, this feast of first fruits, feast of harvest. And so Peter quotes Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, in what we find in verse 25 of Acts chapter 2. And say, for David says concerning him. Him being who? Him being Jesus. Meaning Peter is attributing David's words here in Psalm 16 to be in reference to Jesus. Not David, as people would have presumed. As he says, I saw the Lord always before me. Again, this is David writing under the influence, inspiration of the Spirit. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. How is this about Jesus, you ask? Well, notice how it's all written in the first person. I saw. He is at my right hand. My heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. And the list goes on. But again, it was always thought that this was David referring to himself. 
mean, David wrote it. David was king of, of Israel. He was lord in a lowercase l, sovereign over Israel since. But who was, who was it that was not abandoned to the grave? Was it Jesus or was it David? It was Jesus. And whose body did not see corruption or decay? Was it Jesus or was it David? It was Jesus. This is where Peter is going in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. <laughs> Say his bones are still there. <laughs> his body is decayed. Go look. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He, again, that is David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all, that is we, 120, are witnesses of this. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and here he goes on to another psalm, quoting from Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter making the point once again that David wrote yet another psalm about Jesus. Jesus having taught the, the same thing from this psalm at the end of Matthew chapter 22 when teaching the Pharisees. The Jewish people here believing that the Christ to be the son of David. That's true, right? They believed that. And why Jesus and now Peter use this psalm here to ask this question. How is it, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? In other words, how is King David, how is it that King David would call his own son his Lord? Like, why would he do that? Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Why would David ever say sit at his right hand to his own son? Doesn't make sense. But see, Peter is asking a rhetorical question. And the answer is, he wouldn't. Unless the one to come is greater than David. And again, David is now where? He's buried. He's in the tomb. Body decayed. But whose tomb is empty? Jesus' tomb, crucified, buried, risen from the grave, ascended to heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting the day when his enemies are once again made a footstool at his feet. Peter then declaring in verse 36, 
Let all the house of Israel, Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What's Peter's declaration to this massive crowd of people? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. That's the point of his sermon. That's the point of his sermon. Jesus is Lord. And so you talk about a first sermon. Brother just emptied himself out, poured himself out preaching Christ crucified and risen from the dead, illuminating hearts and minds from the scriptures. So much Christ-exalting meat. A sermon that left the people asking what? What shall we do? (laughs) What shall we do? Which is a question of what? It's a question of application. They may may very well have further questions of meaning. Want to know what does this mean? What does that mean? But right now, the only question on their mind, the only question that mattered, what do we do now in response? What do we do now in response? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, are they cut to the heart because of Peter's funny story? Are they cut to the heart because of his cleverness here? Are they cut to the heart because of the smoke rising in the background over softly playing music? No. They're not even cut to the heart Get this, through the fiery flames that they witness hovering over these 120 people's heads. Nor the miraculous speaking of tongues that they were hearing with their own ears. All that stuff brought what? Amazement. Brought perplexity. Even brought about accusations of drunkenness. Essentially, it brought confusion. But none of it did what? None of it cut to the heart. It only brought about the question, what does all this mean? And then what did Peter do? He opened the scriptures and pointed them to Jesus from the scriptures. And through the preaching of God's word, the spirit did what? Cut to the heart brought conviction. Jesus, having promised in John chapter 16 that the helper would come to do this very thing, to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, this spirit 
wrought conviction that we see here, not man-made manipulation, is what leads to the shift in question. Question going from, what does this mean, to what? What shall we do? And Peter's like, well, I'm glad you asked. There are two things. Verse 38, repent, which is intimately attached to belief, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because now let's think about it. Why do they ask the question, what shall we do? Because they've been cut to the heart. And why then have they been cut to the heart? Because of the Spirit's work in their life. It's the Spirit bringing about what? Conviction of sin. The conviction that they're experiencing is the Spirit's work through the illumination of the Scriptures. But the question is, the conviction of sin over what? What sin? The conviction that they crucified Christ. The realization that they themselves are guilty before a holy, holy, holy God. Which means what as it applies to their understanding and their belief? That they now believe that Jesus is Lord. Thus the conviction. Meaning the Spirit, through the preaching of God's word, opened their hearts and their minds to believe this Jesus who they crucified This Jesus who rose from the dead is Lord of all. And they killed him. And now they're wondering, what can we possibly do to make our wrongs right? (laughs) Like, what can we do to wipe away our guilt? And what does Peter, Peter tell them? Verse 38. Repent, which again is intimately connected to belief. So he's saying, repent, believe, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's telling them, if you want to be saved from your sins, if you want your guilt wiped away, turn away from your sin, turn away from your idolatry, and turn to Christ in faith. And follow him for the rest of your life as Lord, as your king, not Caesar, not your religious leaders, but Jesus who you crucified, which requires what? Faith. Requires belief. Not going to follow someone as Lord that you don't believe to be Lord, which is why repentance and belief go hand in hand. Genuine belief doesn't exist if repentance doesn't. They go hand in hand, which has been where baptism comes into play. And let me be clear, not as a means of, of earning one's salvation does baptism come. As some attempt to, to use this text to defend, that that's not what it means. Baptism is a public declaration declaration of one's belief, a public declaration of one's repentance, 
a public declaration of our commitment to follow Christ no matter the cost. And at the same time, it's a public declaration of the gospel. So, as some have quoted it, a visible demonstration of a spiritual transformation, but it's also more than that. It's more than that. See, here's the picture. Here's the declaration we make when we enter into the baptismal waters. We enter into the baptismal waters symbolizing our life, our, our life apart from faith in Christ. That's who we are when we walk into the waters. That's what we're symbolizing. A life that is dead in our sin and without hope. A life that is guilty before God. A life dead in our trespasses. Understanding it's our sin that sent him to the cross. That we again are guilty, guilty, guilty. We're confessing this before the world. But then we're buried in the water. We're buried in the water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And if we don't come up from the water, what happens? We die, right? Which is the exact spiritual fate that everyone who doesn't follow Christ will receive. It's the judgment from God that we all deserve. But we don't stay under the water when we're baptized, do we? No. We rise up out of the waters of God's judgment, indicating what? That not only have we been buried with Christ, sin paid for, born again, guilt washed away, but we've also been raised with Christ. We are a new creation by the Spirit of God who now indwells us. And we exit the baptismal waters committing to faithfully follow Christ as our king from that day forward, no matter the cost. Which is why baptism is not an option to be considered, but a command to be obeyed. But sadly, this isn't how many in the American church see it today. Don't see the cost that is tied with baptism and subsequently following Christ. In many and most circles within our country, it is seen as a, a rite of passage, a mere religious tradition, an option. Some thinking, well, if it doesn't save, then why do it anyway? Which is revealing whether the person intends to, to be this way or not, a refusal, a refusal to faithfully follow Christ on Christ's terms. They're saying, I'll follow Christ, but only on mine. Which, if we're only following Christ on our terms and not his, it doesn't make Christ our king. It makes us the king. Which then provides no evidence of, of a repentant heart, a willingness to follow Christ, even if one is claiming to believe. See, how would a baptism like I have just described, how would this have been received by the audience at Pentecost? This would have been seen as an act of what? An act of treason. As it would have been a public declaration, declaration that Christ, not Caesar, is my king. That Christ, not the things of this world, is who I treasure. It's publicly saying and affirming what which was considered to be complete and utter blasphemy. 
is publicly affirming the very thing that, that sent Jesus to the cross, while at the same time saying, Jesus is my king, and I want everyone in the world to know it. Meaning this act of baptism came at a great, great cost. And it still does in a vast number of places around the world. But it's also the reminder to everyone who hears these words today that the Christian life is not intended to be lived as a light hidden underneath a basket. There's no such thing as a private personal faith found anywhere in Scripture. No, the Christian life is a life to be spent as a light shining in the darkness, no matter the cost. That's what we who have been baptized have committed to. To live a life of sold-out allegiance to our King, no matter the cost. And this is why when the people ask Peter, what shall we do? Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. There's no exceptions that are made. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Meaning, this forgiveness of sin and this gift of the Holy Spirit isn't just for the Jews. Not just for a certain class of people. Verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What's Peter doing? Again, he's emphasizing God's sovereign work in bringing sinners to saving faith of all ages, of all backgrounds, of all ethnicities, but at the same time emphasizing the human responsibility to do what? Repent and believe. Yes, it's God who saves, but what is our responsibility? To repent and believe, to repent and be baptized, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so essentially what he's doing here is he's offering an an invitation (laughs) I hear Billy Graham in my head saying, won't you come? He's like, won't you come? Come. Come to Jesus. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Same invitation that's being offered to you this morning, friends. Come to Jesus. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And look full in his wonderful face. And see how the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his what? His grace. Come follow Jesus on his terms. That's the invitation. And how did they respond? Verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Each and every one, a miracle of God's sovereign grace. Each and every one committing treason against Caesar and declaring Jesus as their king. And you know what was born? The church. The church in Jerusalem was born. And the question this morning is how will we respond? How will you respond? See, church, next week, next week we'll return to this text and look at it a little closer and some of the questions that naturally come out of it. But for today, 
Let us not be so focused on meanings of this or that that we miss the forest for the trees, that we miss the point of the passage, that Jesus is the Lord, crucified and risen from the grave. Therefore, repent and be baptized. Save yourself from this crooked generation and faithfully follow Christ. Want to know more about what this means or what steps need to be taken? Let's talk. Myself, any of our elders, we'd be happy to talk with you about this. And for we who have repented of our sins, we who have faithfully followed the Lord in believers' baptism, let us continue to live a life of repentance. Not a one-time event that we do and then never to be done again. A life of daily repentance, turning away from our sin and following after Christ. Dying to self but also being faithful to his commands. Let us be people who are faithful to open up the scriptures, point people to Christ. If they ask, what does this mean? Let's tell them. And if they don't ask what this means, let's tell them. (laughs) Tell them about Jesus. Point them to Christ. Let the Spirit work through the preaching and teaching of the Word, through the opening up of the Scriptures. Call them to repent of their sin and to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. And may the Lord bless our faithfulness as we do. Church, you will never, we will never save anyone through our eloquent words. But God, by his sovereign hand, will save everyone he calls unto himself. And how do we know those who call, he calls unto himself? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And everyone who then follows in repentance and baptism and continues to faithfully follow Christ. Yes, this world, this world is hard. It's difficult. These things put real cost before us. Ah, but the treasure that awaits is so glorious. (laughs) Let us be faithful to this end. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come before you this morning and we see Christ in the text. We see Christ through all of Scripture. and, And Peter is declaring the question, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Oh, Lord, may we be a people who continue to practice repentance. Lord, for those who who do not know Christ, who never follow in obedience to his commands, Lord, may today be the day of salvation. But, Lord, we pray that your will will be done and that your name will be glorified, that you will add to your number today and every day for your glory, as we pray in Jesus' name.